Hello everyone and welcome to part two of our conversation with Toby Joshua Fischler. Enjoy. Roll the beat. Roll the beat. Roll the beat. Roll the beat. I feel like we're coming back a lot to to religion, right? And I also feel like we haven't unpacked it in a structured way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that's fine. I I really like the thought you mentioned before of uh, having an ideal, a personal ideal that you strive towards, and that is the judge of you yeah. when you wish upon a star. Uh, so exactly. Also, the value in in Pinocchio uh, mentioned mm-hmm. in Pinocchio. Um, I w- I would say that's a s- starting point and a kind of a but correct me if I'm wrong, where the origins of religion lie as well. Because I wanted to, I was thinking before when you told about this concept of the ideal, uh, we talked about uh, political parties. You also have different religions. Um, it Obviously, you, s- you said like, I don't want to define myself as being part of a political party. Mm. How come you can define yourself as being a part of a religion, which is obviously also perhaps limited and towards the truth what what maybe there's no truth but obviously um how come you can define yourself very strictly into religion as opposed to a political party that i I would like to uh, emphasize the fact Mm. i am jewish Mm. any jewish person who's born jewish is jewish until the day they die even if they don't follow any of the jewish rules they can break every jewish rule they're still jewish there's no there's no getting away from it in in that sense not a lot of jews would want to either because it is quite an ingrained part of the culture. It's not just a religion. It's it's a culture. It's an ethnic group. It's all of those things kind of rolled up into one. So being Jewish is not exactly like being Christian. It's not the same thing. We don't choose. We get pre-committed by our parents, and there is no way to get out of it unless you just don't do anything, and that's fine. Nobody particularly goes about it in that way. The question was quite long. So why could I identify as a Jewish person? I also want to say I'm not particularly religious. I like religious subjects. I like thinking about the human understanding that they bring to the table, the weird things that I have learned about psychology through studying religion is almost like studying psychoanalysis. It is extremely close to one another, which is very weird. But if you want to talk about the origins of religion as to what it is, what, uh, what, what they're trying to do. Yeah, and especially, uh, if I might add, my interest in how come there are this broad uh, mass following in certain religions and then there are minorities. How come Christianity is so appealing? How come Judaism is so appealing? It seems like it has been organized in an automatic way as something that people really subscribe to in in a con- very consistent way through history okay. i'm f- especially fascinated sorry to confuse you no 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 yeah. not confusing at all i'm glad i'm glad yeah. the, qu- the, the question is, is is very structured i'm okay. very glad so okay. to answer the second point first why do people like religions why do people feel drawn to them because they provide a, a cosmic framework to understand your place within the whole of everything that is happening it's extremely useful people like that People like having answers, especially workable answers. Mm. What I think, and what this is a very Jordan Peterson way, I'm just going to give that. You can find fantastic lectures on YouTube about this. He has an entire biblical series where he basically takes the Bible from a scientific perspective. So if you're really interested in this particular subject, 
please go and, and, and watch that. He says that the Bible is a dramatization. It's a story. It's a narrative about what we found out by watching each other. That's simple. It's the great elder who has been there for 80 years when everybody else died when they were 30. And they're like, well, you know, when Sam, the great Sam, did this, and he was nice, and he was kind, and he was good in all these ways, everything flourished for us. And when we did it, when we did it that way, it went very badly for us. So it is an attempt at getting the archetypal meta-story of humanity down in a way that is actually learnable and that is actually useful. Because I don't know if you've read the Bible or tried to look at biblical stories, but the first thing you will notice is you wouldn't really want to live in their world. <laughs> There's nothing particularly um, glorious about their lives. There's murder, there's rape, there's conquest of kingdoms, there's all of these things. But the most striking thing is, is that they are human. They are very, very human. And it is basically a facilitation of human interaction. There is a very clear emphasis between a Jewish relationship with the Almighty, with God, or however you want to call it, that is very much like a father and a son, and a mother and a daughter, and a brother and a sister, and a husband and a wife, which are all the most important relationships for a family. So we mirror our own relationships with our ideal. To get back to your question of ideal, because it feeds in nicely over here, the highest, most perfect ideal that you can imagine of how things should be, that's what God is. Mm. To some people. To me, that's what God is. To me, I take things quite literally. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put this to a rabbi. I'm pretty sure they'd tell me I'm wrong. But then again, Jews hardly agree on anything. We're, we're endless debaters. It's an endless discussion about anything, which is great for me because I love that. Yeah. But I see it as, in my mind, it helps create images. I There is this great passage that's in both of our religions, which is, you are made in his image. He looks like you. And I took that very literally. Obviously, God in Judaism doesn't have form. doesn't look like a human body. But if you do do that, and you think of yourself in the future in the most perfect way, and that that ideal, the house, the wife, the kids, the dog, the kind of house, the gas stove rather than an induction stove, <laughs> a really good oven to make pizzas in, really good kitchen, nice comfy armchair, but helping people, seeing the world as you want to see it, that's your ideal. That's making the world a better place. When your actions fail to meet progression to that image, you'd call that sin. Missing the mark. Or having the wrong mark could be something as well. Ah, now you've touched the important thing. We get told what the marks are. That's what revelation is. That's what Moses does in Judaism. The greatest Jewish leader is Moses, comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and 613 laws that not everybody has to follow. This is the difference between Judaism and the other ones, mainly Christianity and Islam. We, we, we don't want you to convert. <laughs> we don't, we're not allowed to convince you to become Jewish. We're not supposed to. We are tasked 
<laughs> Sadly, you guys are tasked with far less responsibility. You guys have to follow basically the mind laws of Noah. Interesting to look up because trust me, you're following them all. <laughs> you're fine. You're the bar is low. Yeah. You're going to Jewish heaven. It's completely fine. You say it's your task to make the world a better place, but what's what is the better place? And because yeah. what what is the ideal people should have? That's the difficult part, right? Yeah. Well, obviously, I I would say that's subjective, but from a religious standpoint, none of it is subjective. It's all objective. It's all revelation. It's a roadmap. Six hundred and thirteen. People like calling them laws, but laws is inaccurate. They're actually what they would call in Hebrew a mitzvah, which is a good deed. So by doing more of these good deeds and bringing more of these good deeds into the world, the world becomes a better place intrinsically because that is what he has tasked you to do. Plenty of the mitzvahs are very logical, understandable, tangible, Calling your mother is a mitzvah. Like, you know, doing the Sabbath is a mitzvah. Resting for a whole day on a Saturday is a mitzvah. There are loads of mitzvahs. I can't imagine you resting all, all day on Saturday. <laughs> Maybe after <laughs> one of your night shifts. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I do try and ask not to work on Saturdays, but I think they think it's because I want to go party. <laughs> yeah. I, I do like the, I definitely pick one day in my week where I do absolutely nothing. I don't take it to the extremity that most Orthodox Jews would do, which is no fire, no lights, I mean, no, no electricity. And there are lots of strict limitations because they are, they fundamentally believe you're not allowed to do anything that might lead to work. So you're not allowed to use your phone because you might drop it and then you might have to fix it. You're not allowed to drive your car because something might happen to your car. And then you might have to actually work to get something done with it. You're not allowed to leave your city, for example. There are loads of rules like that. I don't follow those, but I do absolutely subscribe that a human being needs one day in seven to actually completely disengage from the rest of the world and focus on their family. And to be with their kids or to be with their brothers or to be with their sisters and to really be there and to not be allowed to think about work. One of the biggest issues in our society is that people are obsessed with work-life balance. It's like, well, it's pretty much baked in to Judaism. You work like a dog for six days and you work hard. And on the seventh day, you're not allowed to even think about it. And you have to be busy with more important things. But another mitzvah is in Judaism to study every day whether you're 14 or whether you're 75 you have to study every day they obviously mean torah i take that to mean no i need to study something every day i need to read a book in an active manner to try and learn something every day also on that rest day then or no on oh, the no, rest day not, i don't yeah, okay, on the rest yeah. day it's for me it's watching tv shows yeah, like yeah. the last one was used for the crown the new season <laughs> <laughs> yes i binged it it was very good okay okay <laughs> but you see that there are all these, like people would be, would be able to look at the, the Sabbath laws as extremely restrictive and suppressive and limitative when actually they are there to be liberating mm. in a certain way. And they are not there to punish you, but they are there to guide you in a certain way. I'm not saying that everybody should be religious or affiliated with a church or anything like that, but 
the core ideas of monotheism, which is what Judaism has really given to the world, is the idea that there is only one God, and not polytheistically that there is a river God and a volcano God and a war God. There's one God, and he's not part of our universe, and he holds all the power, so we are quite limited as to what we can do with this place. We are here because he wants us to be here. It's a very different perspective. I am going to tell you what I admire about religion and then as a second part why I, why I think it's where I think it falls short and as a comparison to um, the law so okay. so what I admire about a religion is like a, a law book it, um, it is at, up until a certain point it was cumulative knowledge so for example the bible if I'm not mistaken was written over several centuries and and adapted and readapted and it's kind of summarizes these struggles and the search for meaning at that time and then um, the the trials and errors of human beings Uh, what what is also basically trial and error is also the basis of law right you construct a law you see the what is wrong with the law and you change it Um, the law has continued to do this at a certain point, I feel like religion has stopped to do that and has stopped to kind of update for relevance, for new challenges that arose. So I'm wondering, what what is your answer to my, my issue with religion on that part? That it's, um, yeah, I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here. I, I absolutely yeah. see what, what you're trying to say. You see it as a cumulative process from a scientific perspective that should never have ended and should keep updating and keep updating the codex, if I've understood yeah, that correctly. Yeah, and make it more timely, make it more relevant to what what today is and, okay. and try to encompass it in, in the values, yeah. I, I see that, but then I would like to inform you as to what organized religion, especially Judaism, actually does. All they do is read the books and interpret them for this age. Mm. That is a commandment. You have to update it. But you don't get to write a new book. You get to write a new analysis. Mm. And from that, very slowly, rules get adapted and moved and updated. But it is a slow process. Always will be and will continue to be so. Rash, big, sudden, instrumental, institutional changes. Never really a great idea. Every time we've done that as humans, it's led to revolutions and massacres. We don't do that kind of thing. But the point is, is also that our perspective of the Bible, why it doesn't, why we don't write, write extra pieces, is the whole point that it is eternal. And that these are the things that do not change. That these rules as to how you're supposed to engage, this is human knowledge, about two individual people. It is quite difficult to explain when there is no common uh, example. So I'm trying to think of one and that makes uh, that makes sense. So, okay. There is a book called the Shulchan Aruch in Judaism. It is an analysis or a compilation of the Torah, which basically starts with rule one. <laughs> and it's two books both about 250 pages, of every single rule a Jew should follow. Read the whole thing and never get, never get even half of it done. Jews are never bored. <laughs> if you want to be a good Jew, you're never going to be bored again. But the first rule is a very clever one. So I would like to walk you through it. 
and see what you think about it and see that, okay, this is clearly also part of religion. So in Judaism, when you wake up in the morning, the rules start the moment your eyes wake up. <laughs> the moment your eyes are open, you got to do something. You need to thank God for being allowed to wake up. You have to get up immediately and wash your hands. Because we have a spirituality. There is deep spiritual roots in Judaism. Like I said, it's closer to Taoism than it is to, uh, closer to Taoism and uh, Buddhism in their spiritualness than what modern people would consider Christianity to be. So we believe that when the soul leaves the body, your body, the physical fleshy thing that's left behind, ends up in a state of what we would call impurity. It is unpure. It's kind of unclean because there's not a soul in it. It's like a cadaver. Like, it, it's not ideal. So when you wake up, get back in. You're pure again, mm. but not completely. You're not completely pure yet. Your impurity, the fact that you have been in an impure state, centralizes itself in your fingertips. So before you, wash your, before you go and wash your hands in the morning to clean off the impurities, you are not allowed to touch any orifice on your body. You're not allowed to touch your eyes. You're not allowed to touch your ears. You're not allowed to touch your nose or your mouth until you have washed your hands. It sounds like a really stupid mundane law. How many lives do you think that saved when they were sleeping in the dirt and they didn't touch infected wounds and they didn't touch their eyes and stuff with horrible things on their fingers and they had to go and wash their hands before they were allowed to do anything in the day? You washed. Why is that a religious law? Yeah. Well, because it's helped them survive. They are useful things. Could it be more appropriate in Corona times where we have to remind people that they have to wash their hands when a Jewish person has to wash their hands so many times in a day before they do anything? You see what I mean? They have yeah. a very different perspective. And that's just one rule. And there are 17 sub rules yeah. as to, well, you know, which water are you going to do it? Well, what can you do with the water after you've cleaned your hands? You're not allowed to cook with it. Definitely not allowed to cook with that water. It's impure. There's been impurity in that water, so you have to get it away from where the people live. So there's literally a distance in the Torah that says, well, you have to take it at least 20 meters out of the village and bury it under, and, and you have to throw it away that it doesn't even get back into the river water because it's impure. It might cause something to our survival. These rules were not written while knowing that bacteria existed. They are written purely by observation and a dramatization of those observations. So we really did learn and survive and thrive because of these stories. And people really put down stories and narrative truth as if it doesn't mean anything, mm -hmm. as if stories have nothing to teach you, and that if it isn't scientifically accurate, then what could possibly be the point in looking at such a ridiculous thing and I find that so short-sighted because mm. they're answering different questions. They're not doing the same thing. They're not even trying to be scientifically accurate. They're not even, it never even occurred to them to do it. They knew that maybe it all wasn't true. It wasn't relevant. It was teaching and it was learning and it was surviving and it was human. You will, never, you will not find a document that is more human than the Bible. Ironically, human in the way we see human. If you give the Old Testament to a Buddhist, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, 
that's insane. That's why I think that Christianity is going to make a comeback at some point, because no matter how much Taoism you read, and I've read the Tao Te Ching, and I've listened to lots of Alan Watts, and I've listened to all these very interesting things, there's only so much of the concepts that we can really latch on to because of the translations. We can't get to the depth of understanding about Eastern society because we're not born there. We don't have the same cognitive structures in our mind to look at the world. But the Judeo-Christian ones are so deeply embedded in you and I that you can't escape them. Mm. Your legal system is based on our legal system. The Trias Politica is in the Old Testament. Huh? Lots of the basic rights and values and laws that you still uphold today as, oh, that would be a great society find their origin thousands of years ago in these documents. So to pretend like there is no value there from like a humanities social science perspective, not a chemist chemistry perspective, is somewhat strange. Yeah. I, I guess my point was more in the lines of some things in the in the holy documents are outdated. Um, and and for example, I, I love the example of the the hand washing, <laughs> and <you>. and uh, <laughs> uh, because it shows that uh, when when the time was written, someone had the responsibility to in a meaningful way discourage people or en encourage people to be hygienic, and to uh, there was no sewers sewering system then to back then to throw out the water at at a safe distance mm -hmm. so that people weren't polluted by it. Mm -hmm. uh, right now we have more hygienic um, uh, applications to our disposal. Uh, we have a sewering system. You could say that it's it's beautiful, I think, that this tradition has been upheld because it shows you, it connects you with the past. But from a purely rational standpoint, it has, we should not do it anymore out of, out of survival uh, necessity. And I don't think we should then, the conclusion should then be that we should abolish this beautiful tradition. Mm -hmm. But um, it shows that some things are outdated, and it's not an issue here, but it can be on other points where, for example, um, homosexuality is discouraged in, in some, some biblical texts. What is your answer to that, to some of the ancient past that we drag with, with us in religion, and that also leaves open to extremism to a certain point? Um, what, what, what is the answer to that, do you think? I'm obviously not going to be made into a representative of every religious person on the planet no. and what they do, but I will try and give you an answer to that question. There are outdated parts of the Bible that we obviously still learn to try and extrapolate a meta, like a meta rule, a rule out of the rule from, but obviously the laws that pertain to polygamy and the laws that pertain to slavery are no longer used because there isn't a Jew in the world who would, who would marry multiple women and who would enslave people. Just doesn't exist. But the example of the hand washing is merely, the reason I took it was because it was literally the first one that came to my mind. But when you look at these really orthodox people and how they look at the world, you can learn a lot from that. Even with the, the level of religiosity of the concept, you can still see that. I watched one a couple of weeks ago that I found absolutely amazing. I was just like, why have I never thought of that myself? I'm like, well, because I'm haven't. i not a rabbi. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> and it's basically how to debate yourself. It's a very Jewish subject. And, it's, and I listened to it. And I was like, 
that's a therapy against addiction. That is the perfect way to deal with addiction. What, the, what this guy describes, I'll try and explain it as succinctly as I possibly can. Yeah. Says, you're a human being. You're not God. You're not a saint. You're just a normal human. So you have a positive inclination. The things you know that are good. The things that you want to do. The things that make you feel good. And you have an evil inclination, which is the one that just wants to do everything right now. Right? I have an exam the day after tomorrow. But I really want to go out with my friends. Mm. I shouldn't smoke that cigarette or that joint. But I'm really in the mood. How do you talk to that voice? Mm. That's a major subject in Judaism. It tells you you're supposed to be in between the two. And you're supposed to be able to have an intelligent conversation in your mind. And it's, well, it's beyond the... He starts it out. If you ever watch a rabbi explain something, you'll see why they're so convincing. Because they speak a normal language. They really just take a very simple thing and they play it out. Imagine in Judaism, you're not allowed to eat pork. Just like in halal, kashrut laws are significantly more stringent. But imagine you're a very religious orthodox person walking through an airport. You forgot to bring a sandwich. Nobody's that you know is around. You walk past the sandwich shop and it smells really good. And there's a bacon sandwich. And the voice in your head says, eat the sandwich. Nobody's here. Next time you'll make a sandwich. Whatever. And the other one says, the conscious mind says, no, I don't want to do that because it's a sin. No, I don't want to do that. And he goes through every single argument as to what the evil inclination can say. No, you really do want it. I can see your mouth is watering and you're really hungry and you're just a human. And why do you think you're so great? Why shouldn't you do that? What makes you better? Why do you think you shouldn't? Mm. All that, everyone knows that voice. Everybody has that voice in their head. It's undeniable. Why would you even try to deny it? Well, so they call it the evil inclination or the evil spirit or whatever. It doesn't matter. That's what's going on. The Jewish answer to that one is extremely interesting. It's like, why pretend somebody isn't right when they're right? So in your head, you're like, yeah, I really do actually want that sandwich. And you have to have a good counter-argument. A real argument. Not, no, I don't want. But a proper argument. It's a, it's a counter-addiction mentality. It is really finding out how can you have an intelligent conversation between your mind and your heart, between expediency and sacrifice between not doing what you want now to be able to have something better in the future and just letting your passions run wild. That is a very deep, one tiny element of the human condition that religion really does deal with in a way that psychology just can't do it. Mm. Because there is a f the difference in my mind between science and religion, because I've, clearly I, have, I value religious concepts. I also really value science, otherwise I wouldn't read all those books and be studying at a university if I didn't care about science. Science has a tendency to look at the world with a scalpel, and it slices it into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces to see how things work, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Religion does the opposite, and philosophies are supposed to do the opposite. They take all the little individual pieces and they put it together to see what it means. And that is a very different realm. It's a different answer to a very different question with a different method. So looking at everything within the context 
of what is practically going on is really important. That's why when I say, like at the beginning, we need to argue for the sake of evidence, argue within the context in which this issue is actually happening. Not in the theoretical, scientific way that you can at this point describe the world, which is infinitely susceptible to change. Your moral values and how you're supposed to treat each other should not be that susceptible to change. You have to look within the context of what does the world look like now. And that is a particularly Jewish thing, but it also rooted, ironically, within the language. This is something that a very uh, great rabbi called Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs he used to be the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. He recently passed away. Very sad. He wrote a book called The Great Partnership, where he wrote an entire book explaining this concept. Why are there so many Jewish scientists? We have no issue with science. We're completely in unison with science and religion at the same time. I don't know how many percent, about a third of the percent of the, sci of the scientific Nobel Prizes go to Jews, and we're not even 0.1% of the population. We value education, which is important. We're in the right part of the world for it. And there's no conflict of interest. We're allowed to be scientific. In Christianity, there's this idea, well, you can't be a good Christian and really be into science. That's not really a thing. Mm. It's like, well, yeah, when you take a tradition he disagrees. He's smiling. He's smiling. <laughs> he disagrees. Okay. It's good to know he's listening. Um, the, the, the Semitic tradition, the Jewish tradition, is that you look at everything within its context. Hang on. Need to get back to it. Got distracted. Um, where was I? Sorry. That there is no uh, uh, conflict of interests. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there's no conflict of interest. So the problem erupted in this rabbi's analysis, that they took a, um, a, lang um, a religion that was in the Middle East for tens of thousands of years in a particular form, also, very importantly, with a different kind of language. Hebrew is a contextual language. There are no prepositions. The, the, hetz, le, la, don't exist in Hebrew. You can't understand what the word means in Hebrew. If you just look at the word in the sentence, you have no idea what it means. You have the whole sentence. Without the sentence, you can't understand what it means. Mm. So it's immediately contextual. So everything is a whole. <laughs> everything is looked at as a whole. When you take that tradition of looking at the world and you translate it into Greek and you translate it into Latin, you lose quite a bit because they have a, a language that is written in a completely different way and from a much more inherently scientific way of chopping things into little pieces rather than looking at holes. So that is already a big difference. But Judaism, very early on, noticed we were along there with the Greeks. <laughs> we saw the Greeks, and to get back to our idea of stealing, we stole a lot from the Greeks. <laughs> we stole the idea that you need a council of judges, not one judge. In multiple judges if you're going to do something. We stole that from them. We stole some traditions for the, for the Passover meal as well, that fikoman, like it's a piece of a matzah that we break and the children have to hide it and then they learn how to negotiate with their grandparents to have a gift because otherwise the ceremony can't continue. We stole a lot from them. But while they were doing philosophy and analytically taking apart the world, we were already <laughs> back then like, they can call that philosophy. It seems to be very useful for certain things. They're doing science. That also seems to be useful for certain things. But it's not us. It's not what we do. We do something else. We do religion. We do 
contextual thinking, we do depth, we do analysis, and we look at how to live the best life in that way. So it's a very different perspective very early on. But when you take our ideas and you translate them into something else, conflicts happen. I don't know how we got here exactly. Yeah, the uh, science and religion. Oh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So in Judaism, we noticed that science was a thing pretty early on in Greece. And we literally just created a blessing. Though. Thank God that there are people out there who are busy with these things that we can benefit of. Great. We'll do a blessing for them. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's just not what the rabbis are going to be busy with. If people in our culture want to be busy with it, that's fine. Go ahead. That's why there's so many Jewish scientists and why there's so many people who are religiously Jewish or, or, or to a certain extent and absolutely believe in evolution like I do. It's a perfect thing. It's a unison. There's no issue there. In Christianity, that's not the case. So there is this kind of weird division where you have to pick an identity that is extremely uncomfortable. I'm sure there are Christians out there who would disagree with me. <laughs> but if you look at how historically it has grown, when the Pope... So Galileo's heliocentrism, no, sorry, the telescope, heliocentrism came from Copernicus. But they said that threatens our worldview. We have to make sure that this is somehow censored or not taught or not brought about because it undermines the creation story as the absolute truth. There are multiple kinds of truth, which is the study of epistemology and philosophy. There isn't one truth. It's not, it's not a thing. But science has now claimed the position in our society as being the Pharaoh. Not being God, the Pharaoh. God mm. on earth. In the sense that anything science says, that is the only truth that there possibly could be. And nothing else. I disagree with that. Because there are other truths to be found in literature and in beauty and in art and in human relations that are completely unscientific. <laughs> that are completely like, well, I don't know why that is. I don't know why that makes me feel happy. I don't know why these particular images of looking at myself in relation to this godlike thing, even if it isn't real, absolutely does kind of help me more than sometimes I'd be willing to admit. But it's a different kind of truth. And we have been so indoctrinated. There's only one kind. And it's just not true. Because otherwise, why would we watch movies? Even though the word science is enlarging right now, I think because you already can study religious studies at the QL, which called Godinswetenschappen mm. or Rechtswetenschappen, yeah. um, theologie and all, the 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 word science the word science is enlarging right now. Do you think it will ever cover the approach of everything? more than it is right now like religion or um well i just don't see the reason as to why it would have to i think that there are multiple forces of truth that need to work in tandem with each other but the problem at the moment is, is that because of science we feel that we can outsource all of your own responsibility to different institutions within your society. And that is also a consequence of that. The fact that we don't have shared common values, which make it extremely difficult to talk to one another, make it very difficult to understand one another in a comfortable way, 
is problematic. So that will come back or will have to come back in a kind of form. And that won't be a um, painless birth. Because as much as I would like to say that I'm not a dramatic person, but I remember when people all say, oh, what do you think is going to happen right before the election? What's going to happen? I'm like, well, we might be watching an empire fall. We might be watching an empire simply crumble within itself. And no science is going to explain why that happened. It is the complete disintegration of common ground. They can't even agree on what a fact is anymore. I don't want us to end up there. And the only way to not end up there is to accept the fact that there is a kind of beauty in otherness. Judaism has to have a philosophy of, well, we're okay with other people because we have no ambition to make everyone Jewish. We have no universalistic perspective. We're very particular people. We're not universalistically conceptualizing things. We're like, no, if it's not useful, if the information can't be used as a tool for something, then we don't want it. A theory is great, but it is susceptible to change. So how useful is it? And that is, is, is where the battleground actually is. It's how are you going to behave? How, how is usefulness defined as how many people can use it as a tool? Or is it like if many people use it, it is useful? Or if at least one person use, uses it, it's useful? Oh, now, we're getting, now we're getting deeply philosophical. I don't particularly know how to answer that question. Yeah. I'm not going to lie about that. But usefulness obviously means that it has a positive ripple effect in the world and that it is something that builds rather than something that divides. And, oh, sorry, I wanted to get back to the point of the dignity of difference. I have no issue with the fact that you guys aren't Jewish or that somebody else is a Buddhist or a Hinduist. Morality and goodness, for example, and this is also a major difference, isn't, doesn't belong to us. Not only Jews are moral in the Jewish world. It's not like we're great and you guys are all, you know, <laughs> terrible. <laughs> That's not the case at all. Morality, the understanding of good versus evil, like I said before, it's a feeling and an experience that can spring out of anybody, anywhere, at any point, because it predates Judaism. It is simply something you get because you're homo sapien, because you're, in the theological perspective, a creation of God with the spark of God, which means you deserve respect. Because I'm special, and I'm conscious, I know that you're special, and you're conscious, and that you're different from me. So the Jewish definition of love is the fundamental acceptance of somebody else's otherness. The fact that somebody is always going to be different from you is what makes it beautiful. But doesn't that raise your um, capacity to help people if you see that they're on the wrong path. What is, if, if you see like this person is different from me, but mm -hmm. you see his being different is causing his, him much pain, should you then um, accept that difference? Like you say, uh, is, is it absolute to accept difference or should you, when should you intervene and should you say this difference is not acceptable? Is, is there something as saying this difference is not acceptable? Judge the sin, not the sinner. There's a, very, there's a lot of wisdom in that one. People can do bad things. It's the way it is. But it's not my job to go out there and fix every single individual. As a, somebody who is a psychologist, you know, nobody is helped unless they want to be helped. You can't forcibly help anybody. 
If a non-Jewish person goes to a rabbi or goes to a synagogue and asks questions, they will get help. That is the way it is. Are we going to go out looking for, outside of our own community, outside of what community, not the sense the rigid Jewish community, but outside of the people that you know? You don't know people who need help? You should be helping them. Yeah, but I know people who need help but don't ask for it. What do you do about that? That's a whole different issue. But when people are lonely, the way that most people these days sadly are lonely, or in a position where they are very easily pushed into loneliness, it's because there is a lack of community, lack of a shared space with shared values where you can have these conversations. Because when you don't agree that some a particular way of behaving, if you don't have the virtue of behavior in your culture, the sense that, no, you are in full command of how you're talking. You have full command over how you're responding to this. Maybe not internally, but externally, you do. If you can't say what good behavior is and what bad behavior is to people, well, then you can't even start that exercise. And that is disintegrating beneath our very feet. And that's what worries me. But at the same time, I see a lot of positive signs. There are lots of people who are looking for it, who are looking for the common ground. And we love to focus on everything that makes us different and everything that, you know, could potentially cause strife because our entire public debate is gauged to that right now. Because they think that somehow this is going to ingratiate them with the electorate. When the ele I've never seen Belgians this annoyed in my entire life. Like getting a Belgian annoyed for more than two days is, is an achievement. But now people are just, the corona is driving them insane because of the sheer lack of leadership. I thought it would get better with our new prime minister, but it has not. We have no clarity as to what is going to happen after the 2nd of December, how they are making the decisions for after the 2nd of December. We were promised a corona barometer explaining what they would do at certain different moments when objective points were going to be made. And our Minister of Health said last week, it's not exactly a priority. So leadership is not something we see very often in Belgium, actual leadership. And I would hope that the next generation of politicians really lets go of the stringentness of their ideology and just like, no, we're here to solve a practical problem. Because governance is ultimately a practical endeavor. But because people don't have their own way of understanding what their purpose is, what their responsibility is, they are just like, well, then the politicians are going to have to decide. I'm like, who trusts a politician? No offense to politicians out there, obviously, but there is something inherent about their work that they make promises that they can't keep. There's, it's just a structural part of their work. They, they can't promise you something that's actually going to happen. Why lean on that? But we want, we want to give it to them to make the decisions for us because we don't collectively know how to make the decisions ourselves anymore. Yeah, yeah. And that's particularly difficult because when you lose the public fora, when you lose the public space for normal people to speak in, and everything is articulated by some politician who's after one particular thing for their ideology, nobody is speaking for the people. Nobody is speaking for what people are actually going through because the entire rigidness of the current uh, 
corona policies are insane to me. The psychological damage that we are doing to a whole generation of people doesn't seem, to, in my mind, does not weigh up to the stringentness of the, of the, of the measures. I have friends all around the world who are doctors and uh, who are studying to be doctors. So they're in the hospitals now seeing everything that's going on. I have a friend who works at the USA, so has never seen so many women who have been beaten to an inch of their life in the ICU. Have we done them a favor? Are they corona um, victims? Do we count them as a corona victim? All the children who are now locked up at home with their abusers. Sexual abuse happens predominantly within families. We've locked them up with their tormentor. And we're like, yes, but it's justified. I'm obviously not advocating for a model like Sweden where everybody gets to do whatever they want. That is not what I'm advocating. But keeping schools closed for longer periods of time rather than keeping them open longer and creating more spaces for people to be able to do things at a proper social distance, stopping the entire social life of your society cannot be healthy. It just can't. And especially the fact that we have no, long, no idea how long this is going to take. It is an extremely short-term view of running a country. Our vision has to go longer than that. These people are going to be with us for 70 or 80 years. Do we really want them all to be traumatized? And does it differ uh, to other countries? In what sense? In the way of doing policy of policy making honestly i don't know it's uh watching each country kind of tackle this is probably going to be the most interesting thing once it's over because we're going to be able to look back what and see what worked what didn't work but our government faffed around for so long that we were the most hit region in the world why are we so content with being lost Why are we so comfortable as Belgians with being lost and accepting it and not being like, guys, get your act together. Like, you're one of the richest countries in the world with some of the best universities in the world, with some of the best academics in the world. How are we this bad at this? Because it's it's depressing view to go into politics because it's already messed up. Well... That's exactly why I went into politics in the first place, because I didn't like the idea that I was going to be somebody who was going to stand on the sideline and scream that everything was terrible like most people do, and especially like most young people do, because I have to relate to my age group. When I was 19, I had a lot of idealistic friends who were like, oh, yeah, the system is just absolutely terrible. It's like, no, the system isn't terrible. It's just slow and it's rigid and it's not, how shall we say, sexy. But it's better to have been in it to see what actually requires, what is actually required to make change happen was very useful. Because all I learned from there was the government promises to do things that they can't do because they don't know how to do them. And it is also not their job to do them. It is not the government's job to build our communities for us. It's our job to build our communities and every single document you will ever read about the federal level of governance and the Flemish level of governance and the Antwerpian and the Leuven one will always have this amazing word of 
we're going to invest a lot of money in community building. Mm. And they have no idea how to do it because it's a religious subject. Because it is something that is so innately human and about shared values that they don't know. And let me ask you one, one question. And this is what I've noticed by being busy with European politics. That's actually where I'm most interested in. What are the European values? Hmm. It is the only answer that nobody has a question, an answer to. Nobody has an answer to that question that is actually honest beyond, well, you know, human rights. I'm thinking about the uh, Friedeslied. Uh, hmm. I'm talking about the song, the European song that Absolutely. we that we hear uh, when I go walking with Baptiste in the morning. We go to Abdé van Park here in Leuven. Hmm. And at eight o'clock every day, they do the Song of Liberty. Ode to Joy. Ode to Joy from yeah. Beethoven. Ode, ode it's, joy. A, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful song. I really, it's, uh, it's beautiful. That is among so other liberty. things. Maybe. No, but Liberty. I think you can't create just one European value. No. We were in war for thousands of years, so... If we look collectively, what is it... What information has Europe actually accumulated about the world once we colonized it? Did we ever come back with a report like, by the way, guys, this is what we learned by colonizing all of you and doing all those horrible things? Did we even show what we did learn? Because we can look back, and that's the big trauma of Europe. It's why we're so confused as to what we are doing and what we are not doing. It's because we can't really look back and see anything with pride. We see Germans who listened to Beethoven in the morning, read Goethe in the evening, and in between went to Auschwitz for work. How do you make that rhyme? How can you look yourself in the mirror philosophically, religiously, morally, when you know that with the most beautiful music and the most beautiful philosophy, they still murdered six million of my kin. How do you answer that question? They have no idea. Mm. That's the problem. No acceptance of the evilness of the past, because the past is always evil in comparison to the present. When progress happens, the past looks worse. There's nothing wrong with that. But to pretend like we didn't learn anything by colonizing the world, it's wrong. The entire idea of English empire was extremely closely linked to scientific research. We got the evolution theory from Darwin because of the, because of the colonial powers. But we also got to see all these different communities of people And we found certain things that show up everywhere. Beauty shows up everywhere. Every culture has beauty. Every culture has art. Mm. A form of a pursuit of truth. Mm. Whether it is philosophical or religious or mathematical even. Because mm. the, the only true language of the universe is mathematics. Applies everywhere across every galaxy. Math is the language of the universe. And love. Love is everywhere. There are families everywhere. Where there is homo sapien, there is love. And where there is homo sapien, there is beauty. And there is truth. Wouldn't it be nice if we could actually just say that those were the European values and everything that comes down from them? Look at our churches. We value beauty. Christianity might have done a lot of horrible things. Like every religion has done horrible things. 
every organization, every political ideology has all done horrible things. But you can't deny that the Christians brought some of the most beautiful things into the world that we've ever seen. Mm. Listening to Bach sonatas. If you have a bit of a heart, would bring a tear to your eye if you're in the right mood. Yeah. We have done things that are worth looking at, that are worth being proud of. I just took a beautiful walk through your city and every five minutes I stopped literally want to like, look at the detail on that. The city hall, right? Yeah. Not just the city hall, more yeah. the individual colleges with the inside courtyards here, yeah, yeah. where you walk in through a beautiful arch and you think somehow you're in like beautiful, like, like in London, these beautiful buildings. That is more capital, more valuable than you can possibly imagine. You go to America, there's nothing old. Everything is new and cheap and not built to last. Why were people capable of putting down the first brick of that status and know that they wouldn't see the end? That they would never see the finished product? Why did they do it? Why did they do it? Because it was not for themselves that they did it. They did it for their values. For no, this is where we govern and where you govern and where you educate and what you value, you make beautiful. And do, do you think this is still applicable right now? Because I see a lot of very ugly <laughs> buildings in Belgium as well. Absolutely. There's Not applicable anymore. After the Second World War, they really... I mean, I don't want to use a word or blame anybody, but this entire idea of it's all about me has also had the consequence that we can't see beyond one lifetime. We used to think in centuries, in millennia. We used to build our infrastructure to last forever. That's how important the thing was that we were building. We don't care about anything anymore because nothing means anything anymore. It just needs to get built. So yeah. and, and, and economically as well as possible. Efficient, efficient yeah. quick. That's what happens when you send everything to the market. That's what happens when human beings aren't allowed to express what they really care about, what they really like, and what the values were. That's the saddest part of you guys having banished the church out of Belgian politics and out of Belgian things. It's because, well... They would have been the ones, like, if you're going to build social housing, don't make them little Ikea shoeboxes. Make them nice, make them big, and it'll be slow, and there will be lots of poor people for a while. So let's try and make a system in which they can enrich themselves while we take care of the problems. But the welfare state has made it completely impossible to think that way because everything is pressing and everything has to happen now. And people are not incentivized in their own lives to give money to things like that, to charities and to uh, beautiful buildings or to building libraries or anything like that. There's no incentive to do that. The government will do it. Who gives a, Who cares if it's, uh, if it's an ugly building? I care. I have to look at that thing every time I get out the door. When it's something beautiful, it makes you happier. When you, walk, when you look at Copenhagen... All those beautiful colors and little streams and bridges and you walk through Amsterdam and the sheer beauty of it. You walk through Antwerp on the Med and you look up. Instead of looking at the stores, you look up and you see these amazing buildings. Priceless. Literally priceless. As a mental psychological capital for your citizenry, they are entitled to beauty. They need it to survive. An ugly world isn't a world anybody wants to live in. Beauty inspires you to want to be better. 
to want to see things. It's a very Roger Scruton way of looking at uh, at beauty. But we've also we've relegated all of those things outside of our own thing. Like we don't need to be busy with that, but we do. Mm. We need those things back because what's the point without them? Okay, that's a beautiful conclusion. <laughs> So I think it's always useful to wrap up a long and meaningful conversation with the the key takeaways, the key uh, things, the key themes that we discussed. Uh, and in that sense, I think we, we talked about in the beginning, especially about meritocracy, about hier hierarchies. Um, then we went over to nihilism as well. We talked a bit about nihilism, we made the bridge to um, theology, made the bridge to religion. Uh, we talked about education a bit, also about uh, how to write, how to read, how to speak, how to listen, um, about our ideals and how we should strive for ideals and how those ideals judge us. And then we come back also to the, we came back to the fundaments of religion um, and about Judaism uh, because we had a a expert <laughs> Judaism in front of us. Um, but I I wanted to. Um, end in on the note that we usually end to which is have you do you have a message that you can give to our listeners who are predominantly students young people in in the prime of their lives to say so and um, considering what we talked about giving meaning to your life um, trying to build up a com community um, do you have like um, some message you want to convey to those to those people Don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out of it alive anyway. But it's very important to remember you're just yourself. You're unique. You have your own issues. You have your own strengths. You have your own weaknesses. But a good rule of thumb is that when you're actually trying to fix a problem or you're actually trying to do something, the part of your mind that you really don't want to look at the part of your life that you're really trying not to pay attention to is probably where you should start. It's very scary to go down into the abyss of all the horrible things that you know that you do and only you know every horrible thing that you do. But you have to look it in the face and it's never going to get less scary. It's only only thing that's going to happen is that you're going to become more courageous and you'll become stronger because of it. And when you're strong, you can help other people. And you can take the responsibility to actually help other people. And that you can choose to be kind. And that kindness is the thing that's actually going to heal the world. Be kind to everybody. Listen to everybody. And don't rush to judgment. Plant the seeds that you actually want to see in your life. Look at your life like it's a garden. Plant seeds. Let the water grow. And see what happens over years. But don't waste your time doing something that you're not passionate about if you don't wake up in the morning with passion and liking who you are or at least liking where you're going you're not going to be very happy and it can lead to very dark places and i wouldn't wish anybody to end up there so straighten your back shoulders back <laughs> and stare it in the face thank you toby fischler thank you very much for this uh, very meaningful conversation Thank you for having me. And we will invite you again, for sure. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs>
get some extra time so this was episode 15 of season 2 it was quite a long episode and in that regard i want to share with you a hint in podcast listening podcasts are not movies so you don't have to watch them in one stretch you can pause them and re-listen to them so it's less intensive this is the record holder of longest podcasts so far but we can assure you more is coming and perhaps longer let's see thanks for listening and see you next week big thanks to Baptiste Vos our content producer and the music is done by Paul de Peut see link in bio